deeper waters what I'm about to do and what it is is a Sunday school lesson basically for adults and we are in the process of a change where we're going to have a Saturday night service, a Sunday morning service and so uh, this is one of the last deeper waters for a while at least Uh, and so I'm honored that I was asked to do that this morning. This morning I'll be speaking about how do you respond to suffering. You know, is there a right way to really respond to suffering? If so, what is it? The short answer is to acknowledge the need of God in our life. You know, as spirit-filled believers, we can be encouraged that even in the midst of great suffering, He is still God. You know, a story I once heard that greatly signifies this conceptually is found in Dmitri's story. You see, Dmitri was a man that lived in Russia, a Soviet-occupied Russia at that time. It was at the height of the Stalin era, and Dmitri practiced his faith in the midst of strict oversight and how Christians were allowed to practice their faith. The pastors of Dmitri's times were required to hand in their sermons every single week to the local authorities. They were also required to report any new converts, any new guests, every single week. And Dmitri lived four hours from Moscow. The nearest church for Dmitri and his family was a three-day walk. It made it impossible for them to attend church more than twice a year. Dmitri began to teach his family Bible stories and verses, and neighbors got wind of this, and they wanted to participate. And when the group grew to 25 people, the officials took notice and demanded that he stopped. But Dmitri refused. He said, no, I will not stop. And and the group finally reached 50 people, and Dmitri was dismissed from his factory job. His wife lost her teaching positions, and his sons were even expelled from school. Still, he continued. When the gathering increased to 75 people, There was not enough room in his house. Villagers squeezed into every available corner and closed in around the windows so that they might listen to this man of God speak. One night, a group of soldiers burst into their meetings, and a soldier began to smack Dmitri across his face back and forth. He then warned that Dmitri, if this didn't stop, something worse would happen. And as the officers turned to leave, a small elderly lady stepped in his path and waved a finger in his face. And she said, you have laid hands on the man of God and you will not survive. It was two days later that that man was found dead from a heart attack. The fear of God spread and 150 people showed up for the next house meeting. Dimitri was arrested and sentenced to 17 years in prison. His jail cell was so small, it only took one step to reach the wall. He was the only believer amongst 1,500 prisoners. The guards tortured him, and prisoners, they mocked him. But he never broke. Each morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand by his bed, face eastward, raise his arms to God, and sing a psalm of praise. The other prisoners would jeer, yet Dimitri would still sing. And whenever he would find a scrap of paper, he would write down a scripture verse or a story from the Bible and paste it upon a pillar in his cell. 
And officials would routinely spot these papers, remove them, and beat Dimitri. Yet he still worshipped. This went on for 17 years. The story goes on to say there was only one occasion that Dimitri considered renouncing his faith. The guards convinced Dimitri that his wife had been murdered and his children were now wards of the state. You see, the guards thought they had finally won. They drew up the papers of renouncement in the morning. They were going to have him sign those papers. What the guards didn't know was the power of prayer. Dimitri's brother, wife, and kids had been praying for him all night. And in the middle of the night, God allowed Dimitri to hear the sounds of their voices praying for him. Yet, when they walked into Dimitri's cell... His countenance had changed. They thought they had victory. They thought they had Dimitri caught in in the renouncement. But in sitting in front of them, Dimitri declared that he would not be signing those papers. That he knew his wife and children were alive and that they were still carrying on the faith. They said that was it, the officials declared. Beating Dimitri within an inch of his life, you are going to be executed. And Dimitri's resolve only increased in light of these threats. He still worshipped in the mornings, and he still posted those verses on his cell pillar. And the authorities had enough, and they drug him through the corridor and into the middle of the prison toward the place of execution. And as these guards drug him into the middle of that prison, there came a sound. A subtle sound. One by one, you could hear singing. And those 1,500 prisoners that did not believe began to sing the praises that Dimitri had sang for those 17 years and raised their hands in worship to the God that Dimitri knew. And Dimitri was then taken back to the cell. Sometime later, he was released back to his family. This story rings out across the world that we live in today. Great opposition in our lives teach us how to respond to suffering. Like Dimitri, there are others who have suffered at the hands of the government that they live under. I think of the Cory Tin Booms who suffered the horrors of the Nazi army or the Jewish people who suffered concentration camps and extermination lines. I heard that the church in China recently has had some disturbing things come out of a report. And there are things going on that we know they're being persecuted. Suffering isn't just for the disciples in the early church. Suffering comes in many shapes and forms. And we can even believe that God is the one who forces us to suffer at times. I think of Job. He lost everything. Body covered in sores and and wounds and Job could have blamed God but he, and he could have cursed God but his response was not to curse God but to endure his own suffering Job's friends came to a, a place sitting Shiva with Job and what sitting Shiva is a common custom in Israel even to this day what it is is somebody comes and they sit with their friend their, their loved one the hurting member of their family for seven days, and they listen to them speak. They pour out their heart, and that's what was taking place. But these friends of Job, they waited their seven days, listening to Job and his suffering heart. And after listening, they began to give their personal advice on what Job should do. 
making accusations and blaming Job for a situation that he was in. It was really never Job's fault, though, for suffering these afflictions that he was going through. Even despite it never being his fault, he said, I will not blame God. Instead, I will continue to witness the goodness of God. And I'm going to praise him even when it is inconvenient, even when my neighbor has casted stones at me. As a fallen humanity, we are bound to suffering. It is a price we pay until the return of our God or the day that we come to our promise. Sin is the cause of suffering. Not necessarily your own sin, but just sin in general. Our sin will cause suffering to you as well as others. You know, sin has a powerful economy. It's clearly defined in Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin are death. And we are left with this question, what should be our response to suffering? How should we endure or overcome this oppressiveness of sin and the acts of sin? And how should we respond when we are mistreated? There has been leadership that says something or doesn't say something. And what happens is we feel discounted, neglected, or even at times ridiculed. You felt attacked on your job or, heaven forbid, even in the church. And felt like all things that work on your work that you're doing just doesn't seem like it's ever enough. And there are those of us here who have invested time, money, our own lives into people who, who one day just get up and leave for no reason, no explanation at all. Blessings alone do not open our eyes. Indeed, blessings by themselves tend to close our eyes. We do not come to know him in the blessings, but it is in the breaking that we come to know who he is. I am thankful this morning that even in all of this, though, we have someone who gave us a standard to look to. It was Jesus who set us a perfect example on how to respond when we're mistreated or when we encounter suffering. Because it is through his attitude on the cross and how he lived his life. You see, Romans 6.23 goes on to say this. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So yes, the sin, the wages of that sin are death, but there is a promise. Through Jesus Christ that we might receive this gift of eternal life. You see, Jesus was constantly attacked by the leadership of his church. He was ridiculed and discounted. The, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees did everything they could to stop his ministry on this earth. And here Jesus was in the midst of, making, of performing miracles and signs and wonders, and he was still being attacked, still being ridiculed, and still being questioned. But what about when Jesus was feeding the thousands, healing thousands, and ministering to the thousands, yet he gets abandoned by the very ones that he was feeding? Jesus was forgotten about and discarded in the face of imposition by thousands of those that he loved and touched. Mark 14.50 says, and they all forsook him and fled. Even his disciples ran away except for John the Beloved. But on top of all that, he was sold out by his own people, brutally beaten by Romans with a cat of nine tails, nailed to a thorny cross and left there naked in the open to suffer that shame and death of the cross, all while the onlookers just poked fun. How did Jesus respond to all that? This is where we find our answers 
to the question, how do we respond to suffering? 1 Peter 2, 21 says, For even hereunto where ye were called, because Christ also suffered for us. He left us an example that ye should follow his steps. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. I concentrate on the fact that it says there was no guile. Not even for a single moment in his mouth or in his heart. Towards those who mistreated him. Could we imagine just for a moment. The next time that you feel discounted neglected or even ridiculed by your leadership on your job in your home in the church if there was not a single drop of guile in us or the next time you feel like someone on the job doesn't appreciate the work you're doing like it's never enough or it never will be enough what a difference it would make if instead of a festering wound it became a deep love for the individual But what about those who leave us? You know, the ones in the middle of investing and pouring out your life to them, they walk away. No guile, not an ounce, not even a drop at all. So if we adopt this lifestyle, then we will change the world that we live in. We have the ability to change the world we live in. There are going to be those that accuse us and point blame to us even to the most patient and loving and kind souls amongst us. But we need to take another lesson from the master. Because in the midst of questioning and accusation, Jesus, he remained silent. Mark 15, 1 says, And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, and the whole council, and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many times they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. He didn't stand up for himself. I think that Jesus could have been like, yep, I'm God. That's right. Now bow down before me and worship me. He could have did that. But that's not our Jesus. He isn't going to force someone to surrender or to bow down. Although there will be a day. The greatest answer to this question isn't how we treat those that love us, but those that would be our enemies. You see, an enemy is clearly defined as someone Who no matter how sincere you are, when you ask for forgiveness, will never forgive you. King Solomon gave us a word of wisdom in Proverbs 25. He said, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. See, bless them that mistreat you. This is a foreign thought to us. We don't get it because it's foreign to who we are, foreign to our flesh. When we're asked to treat our enemies with love and kindness, it's to expect nothing in return. It doesn't make sense. Our initial reaction is like, no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to treat them with love and compassion. 
But can I tell you this morning, when you take that first step and you begin to pray, and you begin to mention their name in prayer, something changes. Something begins to shift, not necessarily in them, but in you. It creates in you a peace that gives a grace a whole new meaning to your life. It is one thing to receive grace, but it is an entirely different thing to give grace away. It was Jesus who chose to make himself of no reputation, not to have guile in his heart, and who even said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't defend himself. Instead, what he did was he set an example for us. Show kindness to those that have mistreated you. Because what happens is that when you begin to attempt to prove yourself, your innocence, you quickly put yourself at the mercy of your accusers. The moment you start making a scene and defending yourself and trying to justify what you've done or what's going on or, hey, I'm, I'm innocent. You make that accuser your judge and are in a sense now submitted to them in their view of who you are. But our flesh, that person that we are, has these kind of responses. We begin to say, well, if they knew how hard I worked last night or how many hours I spent designing that or creating that. If they knew just what I was going through, if they just knew how much I used to care. And in all of your attempts to defend yourself, you actually elevate them as a judge above you. And by raising them up and defending yourself, you are, you are actually forfeiting your spiritual authority. Your right and your promise. Because God wants to protect you. God is the protector. You have to give up your rights to God and let him become your defender. Because he is the only one who can actually do it. When Jesus began to take that final walk to that hill called Golgotha. He was getting spit on, he was getting yelled at, rocks thrown at him. And just a few days earlier to him actually walking down that, that path, people were placing palm trees in front of the donkey that carried him. And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And what that means is this praise and joy and adoration and these crowds cheer and joy for who he was had turned into anger and hate over an allegation that was fault yet extremely true because he is God. You see, Jesus, the man who never had guile for those around him, and he loved all to the bitter end and even asked that there would be forgiveness for this act of brutality. You see, if we are going to be like him, then we have to understand the words of Paul. Because what did Paul say? He said, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And we often think that this is just a declaration of discipline in our life. Yet the discipline is not the cross. It's not our spiritual disciplines that we die out daily in, in our daily lives. You need spiritual disciplines, but that's not what this is talking about. You see, discipline is your Gethsemane. It is our preparation for what is coming. Gethsemane is where you acknowledge the fact that and you understand and you come to grips with the fact that you're going to have to suffer. While in suffering, the only way to get through it is to go through it. Jesus exemplifies this principle in the garden while in a deep moment of prayer found in Matthew 26. 
It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And a second time, Jesus went in prayer and he said, He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then there was a third time. And it says, so he left them and went away once more and prayed and a third time saying the same thing. You see, Jesus had to suffer this in order that that cup might pass. Matthew 26 says, rise, let us go because here comes my betrayer. The only way for the cup of suffering to pass in our lives is to drink it. I'm closing, the musicians can come. I want us to rest assured, though, that there are things that allow us to be prepared for this suffering. Yes, we must die daily. But to die daily is to be like what John said. I must decrease and he must increase. If you want to know how much of you is still alive and how much of him is in you, then the next time someone says an unkind or hurtful word to you, just ask yourself, how did I react? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. To be crucified with Christ is not just our daily lives lived in surrender, but it is to be truly crucified. Let me say it like this. Jesus was not crucified when they whipped him with the cat of nine tails. Jesus was not crucified when they nailed his hands and feet to that cross. He had suffered enough, though, up to this point. But what happened was a guard went out. He reaches up a javelin and the pointed end of that javelin. He shoves into Jesus' side. And what happens? Blood and water flows out. You see, in that moment, Jesus didn't grimace. He didn't yell out in agony or curse against that man. There was no response. Only blood and water flowed from the crucified body of Jesus. And when we are crucified with Christ, when the actions and words of others do not cause us to grimace or to yell out in pain or curse them, then we can rest assured that he is in our example. And if we want this light of fire to rest upon this city of liberty, then we have to receive this powerful revelation of Jesus' name and the beautiful gift of the Holy Ghost. And then we get to this point, the point where you and I can rise above the hardships of ministry in our daily lives and begin to live a crucified life with Christ. Our response to this powerful truth that we must suffer because he suffered. When we receive that revelation, then we can understand the true cost of his discipleship. Do not fear, though. His yoke is light and his burden is great. But he is working on us to see us be made into his image. Paul said to the church in Philippi, and it holds true even to this day, 
I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, the time of his return. If you will, stand with me. We can, get, we can rest assured in the fact that he set an example for us and how to respond to this suffering because he suffered before us. And I'm grateful and I praise his name and I worship his name because there is no one like him. There's no one that can do what he can do. And we can walk with him and he is there for us in the midst of the valleys, in the midst of the suffering. So if you will this morning, let's just praise his name and lift his name high as we enter into a time of worship.